has a distinct voice. I mean, he's been around long enough, right? His rant from 2007 has been around long enough that everyone has seen it. We know his voice. Andrew Dowdy here on the High Motor Podcast this week. You know that's Mike Gundy in the open. So I can't play that clip and leave that identity under the table and say, who do you think that was? But if I could, if I just read that transcript of what he said or even altered the voice, How many of you would know that was Mike Gundy? I sure as hell would. I bet those of you who know college football well, you would know it was Mike Gundy. This is the same guy who said all that stuff in the open, plus a whole lot more on a teleconference on Tuesday. This is the same guy who two years ago blamed transfers on a snowflake, and I quote, snowflake society of non-committal people. Also a quote, non-committal. This is the same guy who repeatedly flirted with other jobs, who left his program in limbo, who left his staff in limbo, his players in limbo, who left recruits in limbo several times. He was taking that Tennessee job way back. He was taking that job. His family was looking at schools and they were planning on leaving. That was the plan. And then he backed out and came back to Oklahoma State. And that's just just one time he complained about his problem with society. Mike Gundy, get atop my soapbox, Mike Gundy. Proclaim that one American news is the objective news source. He said he stopped the opinion shows and found a new objective news source, one American news. The athletic department is separated from the university like he noted. So they can make their own call on this. Campus is closed. Who gives a shit? Let's play football, right? Why are we doing that? Because Sir Mike Gundy, the Honorable Mike Gundy, admits that it's all about the money. Which, no shit, Mike. We all know that, right? But Mike Gundy, the $5 million man, is worried about the money. With his army of of unpaid players driving a multi-million dollar organization that is Oklahoma State football. This is from Pat Forty at Sports Illustrated. I would like stock tips from noted expert Mike Gundy. Also some cooking recipes. Could he offer best practices to our educators? How about weighing in on the Middle East? Pat, let me know if you hear back on the recipes. The cupboard is a little bare. A little bland at the Dowdy household this week. 
Because shit, I mean, I, I would take Honorable Mike Gundy's opinion on medical responses to the coronavirus. I would take that. No, of course I fucking wouldn't. Just like I wouldn't take his recipes. Hundreds of thousands of people are infected. We're approaching, what, tens of thousands of people dead now. But Mike Gundy, he's going back to work in three weeks on May 1st. That's his plan, despite nothing. Not one smidgen of anything to suggest that will be safe or that will be smart by medical terms. But maybe the the one American news team told him to do that. They told him that student-athletes, they're young people. They can handle the coronavirus, says Mike Gundy. Meanwhile, the facts, the actual facts, none of which Mike Gundy referenced in his hour-long teleconference, the facts facts say those around that age are still dying at a 0.2% rate, an astronomical number for somebody that young. You know, you know, when you're a kid, when you're a kid and you look at adults and you think, that person's an adult, he's an adult, she's an adult, God, they must be smart. They must know things, they must know everything. And then you become an adult and you realize, you know what? There are a lot of stupid adults that just don't know shit. When you're a kid and you look at those adults, those college football coaches patrolling the sidelines, you know, making the play calls, calling in the trick plays, doing the press conferences, working their ass off, and you think, damn, that coach must be smart. To be in that position, to be making multi-millions of dollars as a college football head coach, he must be brilliant. He must look at all angles. He must be objective. He must have a really good grasp on things, a really good grasp on society. Turns out, no. Turns out that's not true. And in lots of cases, in a very particular one case this week. Anyway, somebody who does have their shit together, somebody who is objective, one of the best in the business, in my opinion, love having him on the show, Connor O'Gara, Saturday Down South, to talk about some actual football stuff here as we drown ourselves now in the Mike Gundy stuff, also hypotheticals, old games, other fillers during this period of non-sports here. And Connor, let's take a look at some win totals here in the SEC Obviously, these are contingent on a full 12-game schedule. The one that stuck out to me, Alabama. Alabama at 10.5. Last year, they failed to win 11 regular season games for the first time since, I think, 2010, if I looked at that correctly. But correct me if I'm wrong on that. 10.5 is tops in the SEC. Is that number just too high regardless? Or, Or you're comfortable saying they'll get back on the horse and they'll win 11 regular season games this season, no problem? I know there are a lot of people that want to throw dirt on Alabama right now. It's an easy thing to do. It happened in 2014. It happened, you know, back in 2010. And I usually think that doing that is premature when it comes to Alabama, just because I I think that right now they're actually set up pretty well to to make another run at a national championship. I I think that, you know, given what's coming back in the conference, Alabama quietly in, in a weird way, got set up in, in a, as about a good of a situation as it could have asked for with returning the likes of, of Najee Harris, Dylan Moses. That was a massive surprise. Oh, by the way, Devontae Smith and Alex Leatherwood all coming back. Those are four guys who could have been in the first round this year. And to have those guys back with uh, arguably the most important returning assistant of anybody in the country, that's Steve Sarkeesian. The job that he did last year with that Alabama offense was so underrated over the course of the season that, Nobody realized that like people didn't stop this defense. Yeah, they lost against Auburn, and they, they lost against LSU. People didn't stop the Alabama offense. They didn't even stop the Alabama offense when they had Mac Jones there. 
So yeah, regardless of if it's Mac Jones or, or if it's Bryce Young or Talia Tungabailoa, whoever it is, I think that Alabama is going to be in really good shape to score a lot of points. And I think they're going to be much better defensively too, because we forget that this was a team that was playing four freshmen in the front seven in September last year. There's an Alabama program that doesn't have more than one freshman starting in the front seven on a yearly basis. That that hadn't happened since 2010, that they had anything even close to that. So I think that, you know, the, the factors in play are going to help Alabama if they're able to return at full strength and avoid those those August injuries, which just bit them really, really hard last year. I think Alabama's in good shape to bounce back and hit the over on that 10.5. Yeah, and even pull up their, their schedule again. Where's the loss? I, I guess they, they have Georgia at home. Yeah, they go to LSU, and you can talk about LSU, you know, if you want to with all those losses, but where is where's the loss on their schedule? And yes, we I'm not going to sit here and say there isn't a loss because we we know college football and anything can happen. Sure, maybe they could lose to to A and M at home, but I guess that's my my problem here. If it was at eleven and a half, that'd be different. That's just one game. But sitting at ten and a half, you're saying they're going to lose two of these games, and they're going to be favored, if not heavily favored, in all, every one of these games. Where's the, where's the loss on their schedule? Where where do you think they could even stumble? And we're talking about stumbling twice here. At LSU, that, that's the only place I look at on the schedule, and I think, you know what, that, that could definitely happen. Um, I'm not dismissing LSU as much as others are. I think that they're going to get plenty of votes to win the division, it, and I, I think at ICC Media Days if we still have that. But, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's still the one place, despite the fact that Alabama has had so much success there the past decade. I think that that is, is definitely still a team that can beat them because that system isn't going anywhere. Yeah, Joe Brady left. He's gone. He's with the Carolina Panthers. Defense men were still calling plays for this offense on first and second down. And there's still this belief that with Jamar Chase back and with, you know, they, they, they recruited extremely well, uh, you know, the last couple of years with Coach O, that's been kind of the, the forgotten thing with this team and being able to replace these key pieces. But, I think they're going to be in good shape to be competing for a playoff spot. I think that's the yearly expectation now at LSU. Now it's not going to be like 2019. There's just no way that all those pieces are going to align, but they have a lot of faith that miles Brennan is going to be a more than capable guy. They have really kind of gone out and made sure that he's not going to be lacking in confidence. They're turning the offense over to him because He's waited. Now is his time. And they feel like physically he's at that level where he should be able to hold up for an entire SEC season. And I think that, you know, that game, by the time that that rolls around in, you know, early November, we're not going to be asking all these questions about who's going to fill this spot for LSU, who's going to fill that spot for LSU. We're going to have a much clearer picture. I think this, this would be different if we were talking about this game in September, like we are with that Georgia game. But that late in the year, yeah, I think LSU has a has a fighting chance to beat Alabama. And looking down the line here, you know, Florida and Georgia at ten wins, then A and M at nine and a half, and they haven't won ten regular season games going back now since nineteen ninety eight. And looking at their schedule again, you get the four non conference home games. They should be heavily favored again. Not to say they couldn't stumble. Colorado, North Texas, Fresno State, and then Abilene Christian, uh, Vandy, and South Carolina from the East on that schedule. You know, it's really easy to, to pile up some wins for them. I mean, we can pretty comfortably say that they could get to six wins, no sweat with those games if you want to. But 10 is still a meaty number for A&M to get to. Again, they haven't been there since 1998. What is your read on that? Do you like their chances to to get to 10? And would you even consider that getting over the hump? Would 10-2 and two be getting over the hump for Jimbo, or does he need to do something even better than that this year? 
I think Jimbo, in order to continue to recruit at the level that he wants to and needs to at a place like Texas A&M, I think he needs to get to a New Year's Six Bowl this year. That, that's not saying that he's going to be on the hot seat or anything like that when you sign a, a 10-year deal or $75 million guaranteed. The word hot seat doesn't really exist um, that much we know. But this is such a pivotal year for A&M because the, the schedule is such a popular topic of conversation. It has been the last couple of years, but that has sort of lowered the bar for A&M because they have that Clemson home-and-home. And because obviously facing this division, it's really difficult. But you look at the schedule this year, and you're just like, oh, that's as easy as you can ever ask for when it comes to an SEC West schedule. And now with all these other contenders who have new starting quarterbacks and stuff like that, yeah, if A&M isn't competing for a division championship in mid to late November, something has gone horribly wrong. But here's the one thing that keeps me coming back to taking the under when it comes to all of these A&M preseason expectations. There's going to be people saying that they're a sleeper playoff contender, all these different things. This past season, they had 300 minutes of football against teams that finished in the top 15 of the AP poll. They led for seven minutes and 42 seconds of that time. I mean, something's wrong there. If you're not even getting on the same level, it, we tend to think that, oh, you know, because A&M kind of pushed Clemson, uh, that historically good Clemson team in 2018 to the wire, you know, that, that, that all of a sudden makes it like, okay, that A&M is on this level. They're not on that level yet. They're just not. They haven't been. This is the same team that in the 21st century has been ranked in the AP poll to start off the season seven times. And in six of those instances, they didn't even finish in the top 25. I want to see it first from A&M. I want to see them actually be able to control the line of scrimmage against some of these elite teams because getting blown out by Alabama and LSU like that, it doesn't answer that question to me. And it doesn't make me want to say yes, just because Jimbo Fisher is there in year three, that means that they are all of a sudden going to start beating Alabama and LSU. But I agree that it is a pivotal year. And I think that he has to have a year sort of reminiscence of maybe 2018 LSU, where you, you rise above expectations and you get to a new year six bowl at least and kind of show, Hey, look, we're, we're making the right steps and it's no longer, you know, kind of eating for a and that we're used to. Yeah. Now going, going up North here, since you dabble in the big 10 a little bit, any numbers stick out to you from the big 10, you know, Ohio state's at 11, basically with that, you're saying undefeated season, unless you just like loaning your money to, uh, to a sports book and, and not getting it back for four months, Minnesota, nine, uh, Penn state, Wisconsin, sitting there nine and a half, Nebraska, a little bit farther down the line at six and a half. Talk about, and I know you kind of did a breakdown on Twitter of teams, just like you mentioned with A&M of teams that have been ranked, uh, beginning of the season and then falling out by the end of the year, Nebraska, a little bit farther down there at six and a half. Any of those numbers or anything else in the big 10 really get your blood pumping? I never thought I'd see the day in which there would be a preseason over under for regular season wins that had Indiana higher than Nebraska. I mean, let's process that for a minute. That, yeah, Indiana, that is, yeah, Indiana had seven and a half wins for those of you who haven't seen it. So yeah, full win above Nebraska. I mean, that, that tells you how quickly things can change. And uh, Indiana playing in the tougher division as well, might I add. Um, I think that, that those two things are interesting. Those are the two that really stand out to me when I look at both of those. Because Indiana with Tom Allen has done some really, really good things so far. And I think that people look at the returning production and Bill Connolly does such a great job of putting this together. Um, used to be at SB nation now at ESPN. And you look at a number like 78% of the returning production that Indiana brings back on that team. That's 11th in the country. They're ranked 13th uh, defensively 37th on offense. I mean, this is, 
this is how you change the the narrative and discussion about your program. And, and I think that, you know, we're looking at a team that won eight games last year that sort of surprised people and came out of nowhere. Yeah, they didn't have that marquee win necessarily, but I, I think that, that that in itself is just fascinating to, to understand that, look, like there are actually people out there that think Indiana can be this on, on a somewhat yearly basis. When you turn that much production, I mean, that that is a significant development. And then on the Nebraska side, yeah, I mean, we're we're losing faith in, in the Scott Frost thing, like uh, quickly. I, I think the public is, and there are still people that are holding on to this belief that he is, without a doubt, the guy who's going to bring him back to the days of yesteryear. I think that's ridiculous if you're hoping for a repeat of 94-95 anytime soon. But I do think that Scott Frost can improve this year. I'm glad that we're not in a place where – we're going to have, you know, Nebraska starting off in the top 25, which was just absurd after a four-win season and something that should have never happened. But, yeah, I have serious questions about Adrian Martinez in this offense because the year-two step that everybody expected him to take, it didn't happen. And now could Scott Frost potentially have, a, you know, a quarterback battle on his hands with Luke McCaffrey and all these things? Yeah, I think that's all out there. And I think we're trying to figure out what in the world Nebraska is going to look like it's so rare that we're talking about Nebraska without these sky high preseason expectations, but that's kind of where we're at. And I, I think that I would maybe take the over and reluctantly. So, but I mean, that's at six and a half uh, that, that is how low we have come down on Nebraska. The, the one over though, that I would look at and I'm like, yep, I would take that over in a heartbeat is Iowa at seven. I, I'm taking Kirk Ferentz to win eight games on a yearly basis moving forward and, until otherwise, you know, I understand that they lose a lot of talent, especially in the trenches, Tristan Wurst and AJ Epinesa, those guys were huge on each side of the ball for that team. But, and I, and Nate Stanley, the loss of him as well, but I, I just trust Kirk to figure it out at this point. And that, that's something that in that division, you should be able to get eight wins on a yearly basis. I tend to think that Iowa, we tend, we underrate them in the preseason, but they're, they're a team that if I'm going to bet on anyone to hit the over in the big 10, it's probably them. Let's go back down to the SEC. Actually, Mike Leach, what is your feeling on him? Because I mean, we're all about honesty here on the High Motor Podcast. He's been on the show a couple of times. I've never had any issue with him. You know, responds to to every call or text that I really ever sent him pretty quickly and nicely. But, but Connor, I've honestly been been scared to approach him on this subject. I seriously have. I'd love to get his opinion on it. But you know he's not going to address. I'm talking about the transfer situation here after that tweet last week. You know he's not going to address specific situations. He's not about. To, he's not talking about individual players or conversations and. You tweeted the other day, regardless of what you think or anybody else thinks about that that news tweet last week, that these transfers are a problem. You know, one of the players said it, it was a factor. Don't know about the other yet. How big of a problem are we talking here? Or is this going to be a non-story come five months from now? It might be a non-story come five months from now. But for right now, I mean, this is this isn't good. There are people out there that are saying, oh, you know, this, this person's just a snowflake. They were buried on the depth chart or oh, this didn't offend me, this is just an overreaction, the media is just blowing this out of proportion. You know what? When you have players that respond to a tweet from their high-profile head coach, one of them being a senior captain in Errol Thompson, yeah, we in the media are going to react to that. That's news. That's significant. This is the type of stuff that shouldn't be happening during a time when, hey, there's no in-person contact. Mike, Mike Leach is in Key West right now. There's no way that something like this should be making headlines when you have nothing else to do but coach football, you know, in the best possible way that you can, given your limitations. And it's just so unnecessary. Like, you can think that the tweet wasn't offensive, but 
you've got to know your audience. You've got to understand the historical context of, yeah, you probably shouldn't mention a joke involving nooses when you're coaching south of the Mason-Dixon line. Just something you shouldn't do. Picture if Joe Moorhead had done something like this at Mississippi State. The Yankee, the guy who they weren't willing to accept, despite the fact that he never did anything remotely like this to show that he wasn't fitting in in his new surroundings. If he had done something like that, people would be skewering him right now. But because it's Mike Leach and because Mike Leach is fun on social media, we're like, ah, no, it's just Leach being Leach. You know what? I, I do think it's significant from the standpoint of if you have players reacting, that matters. If you have a player that has come out and have his father say, yes, this did factor into the decision to transfer, that's not good. And that's something that Mike, needs, Mike Leach needs to learn about during with his new surroundings. I mean, there have been it's, – it's no secret that – he hasn't had a high-profile job. He's been at Texas Tech and, and Washington State, places where he can kind of be himself and shoot from the hip a little bit. But in the SEC, it's just different. It's just different. And you've got to understand that you have a new set of surroundings, and there are people who are going to care about this stuff and dissect it in a way that you've never been dissected before. And that, this is a, a reminder of that. Of you know, Even if the, the tweet didn't up, up, upset you personally, you can still recognize that this had a negative result. And what was the positive result? How many retweets did he get from that? How much did he build his brand from doing that? That's the thing that I come back to. It's like, look, you, you can't just shoot from the hip. If you're going to ask players to, to behave on social media and understand you know, what they're tweeting and who, where it's coming from, you yourself have to practice what you preach. And so that's, that's the issue that, that comes with something like this. But yeah, I mean, winning is the cure-all, and five months from now, who knows if we're going to be talking about stuff like this. Hey, last thing for you, I think it was last week, you guys did an, an SDS roundtable uh, with some very early playoff picks, and you have Clemson, Ohio State, Alabama, yep, we got it on those three, and then Oregon, you know, with Ohio State on that schedule, if they drop that one, we're basically talking about running the table here, so how much of your, your Oregon pick is Oregon themselves, and how much of it is is Oregon's path after Ohio State? Yeah, I'm sort of just hedging. I'm basically saying the winner, the winner. Um, please let let us play that game, Ohio State and Oregon. I understand that there are bigger things at play here. Um, I'd like to still be able to to have that game, just selfishly as a fan, of course. But yeah, I'm essentially saying I think the winner of that game will will go to the playoff um, and hedging, of course. But I think Oregon's going to be really good. I think Mario Cristobal is a standout coach. I think what they did last year was really solid. And, and do I think that, you know, they had the year that they were hoping for? No, I, maybe, you know, they're, they're a, a, a Bo Nix overthrow away from, from winning that game in the opener and having a much different narrative with how we talked about that during last season. But, you know, the issue facing Oregon is obviously replacing Justin Herbert. Is there a possibility that this can be a little bit of a Patrick Ewing Bryce Harper type thing where all of a sudden your best player leaves and then your team goes, you know, makes that next step? I think that that's possible. I really do. And part of that is based on my, my belief in Joe Moorhead and thinking that he knows how to run an offense. He's an elite offensive coordinator, offensive mind. And I think that, you know, given what they have returning, you know, at the, at the playmakers and CJ Burdell is going to be special. I think, you know, by the way, you return the best offensive lineman in the country. I think that there are, there are a lot of promising things working in Oregon's favor. The path is also, I think, pretty favorable in the PAC 12. So yeah, I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that they're going to win a national championship. They obviously still have some issues to overcome. They're they're pretty low in terms of the percentage of, of returning production. They're at 89, not ideal necessarily. 
Um, but you know, they're, they're sitting there and especially on offense. I mean, that's really what they're going to have to be able to over overhaul, but defensively they're, they're going to push people around and that's going to be one of the nation's top defenses. It was last year. It will be again this year. It's going to be really difficult to score on that team. So yeah, I think Oregon has absolutely has a path to the playoff and they could potentially end the PAC 12 drought. So that path, I mean, is North Dakota State the second hardest game on their schedule? Looking at it again, I mean, you have, you have Washington at home, Stanford at home, USC at home, Arizona State at home, at Washington State, at Oregon State, at Colorado and Hawaii. Is North Dakota State the second hardest game on that schedule? I I think there's a strong argument that it is. No, I mean, USC at home. USC is still going to be good. Like, I, I'm not necessarily going to go go there just yet, but yeah, I mean, it, it sets up well. And I'm I'm also not... I think that trip to Cal is always a little bit difficult too. I think Justin Wilcox can coach the crap out of a defense. I think that that, that guy is one of the best defensive minds that we have in the sport. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it is a very favorable schedule. I mean, Colorado with, with a new coach and, and Stanford's been down and Arizona has been down and, you know, Arizona state could be a little bit tricky, but that game's still at home. And then the two games to end the season, you got a first year coach at Washington state. And then, you know, you're not really worried about going to Oregon state. So yeah, the path is favorable. I'm not quite going to go there and say North Dakota state. Um, you know, more about, about that level of football than I do admittedly, but, I'm still going to say that USC is probably a more challenging game than North Dakota State. Is that fair? Yeah, that's absolutely fair. I, I, it was more of a, I'm looking at North Dakota State as I would probably put them as a fringe top 25 team. I don't know if USC is a top 25 team. Are they? I think USC is. That's where I'm coming from. I, I, we, I guess we can at least agree that there, there's an argument to be had that North Dakota State is is near the level of USC. If you put USC and North Dakota State on neutral field, we'd have a game, right? Yeah, I think we'd have a game. I mean, USC still won seven and two in the Pac-12 last year. I mean, was was a was a solid team. I understand that they did not look good in the Holiday Bowl, and Iowa just destroyed them. But I mean, this is still a team that you know that beat Utah last year, and you know was was still a team that I think once they kind of figured out their quarterback situation was was significantly improved. I mean, that's kind of been the mo for for USC in recent memory. If they can figure that out, they're they're a much 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 better team. And given what you know, is on in terms of pressure for Clay Helton. I think that they will play for him, and I think that they're going to sense the the urgency to be able to win this year. I think USC is is capable of of having you know one of these nine win seasons, but I, I do think that they would probably be given a significant edge against North Dakota State to start the year. Though I understand that that is a tricky game and one that I think Oregon, looking back on, is like, man, why did we schedule that for the opener? That that might not have been the best time. All right, that's Connor O'Gara Saturday down south. Also Saturday tradition on Twitter at CJ O'Gara. Always great to have you on, Connor. Really appreciate the time. Yeah, appreciate it, man. Nothing you said that could make me realize 